Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Welcome to another session of Launch AMA. Today, I am joined by Ganesh Swarmy of Covalent HQ. Welcome, Ganesh. Hey, Sam. Great to be here again. Awesome. So, so we have like a long discussion ahead of us, and, and I'm just looking at the questions here, both on my list and I'm sure questions that the audience is going to answer. So quickly, I'm just going to go over some house rules. Uh, folks, for you that are listening in live right now, if you have questions, please type them into the Q&A session, and then I'll make sure to, to flag Ganesh to answer um, as much as we can. Uh, Ganesh told me offline that, that anything's on the table, so feel free to ask about anything from his uh, favorite food. Uh, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but but let, let's just kind of backstop a little bit, because obviously you and I have known each other a couple of years already. But let's start uh, just at the beginning. Why don't you just tell, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into tech and, and specifically entrepreneurship? Yeah, that's a great place to start. So I'm a physicist by training. I went to engineering school and I spent the first uh, half of my career in the physical sciences, which is building cancer drugs. And I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur, but uh, I had moved to Canada when I was uh, 19 and uh, I didn't have any connections. I didn't really know how to, how to get started. Uh, I've basically read every entrepreneurship book that's come out in the 90s and the early 2000s. And uh, I was just very curious and I, I, uh, I really wanted to do something. And so while my peers were going and joining uh, established companies like Google and the Microsofts, uh, I went in and I uh, joined uh, an upstart. I was employee number one at a company. It was a small office, probably smaller than the, the room I'm in right now. And uh, that was an incredible uh, ride. And uh, that company today, Zymux, is the biggest biotech company, company in Canada and it's listed on the New York Stock Exchange. And that, that was wild. So then it was time for me to do my own thing. One issue with the biotech space is it takes about a decade to get your MVP out. So for those of you who are building minimum viable products, uh, so 10 years is a long time to, uh, to, to search for product market fit. So I wanted to uh, move to something faster. My peers were uh, doing stuff in the internet space. You know, They were going through uh, the ideation and go to market and, uh, and fundraising and acquisition in 18 months or less. And I kind of missed that. So I moved to the, the data space, which was adjacent to you know, biotech uh, pharmaceuticals. And for the past decade, I've been doing databases. So that's really uh, uh, where I cut my teeth on the technology front. And uh, yeah, and then one thing led to another. And here we are with Covalent. Awesome. So, so before we dive deep into to Covalent, um, I want to talk a little bit about Saluda, right? Did I pronounce Saluda. that right? Saluda. Saluda. So, so it was in the data space. You started that kind of all by yourself. Was, was it an idea or kind of just you were trying to solve something for yourself and it kind of became something a little bit bigger? So it started as a consulting firm. And the issue, I would say, uh, probably 2013, 2014 era was a lot of the traditional uh, enterprise workloads were starting to move from on-prem uh, on hardware and software to the cloud. And a lot of these enterprises had challenges making that transition. So uh, what we try to do there is help these companies ease up their transition. So we, 
we went in and uh, you know built uh, database technologies and scaled database technologies and you know helped bootstrap the cloud practice within these enterprises. So that's really what Solota was, and uh, it was 100% in the in the data space. And uh, we even built a product to ease that transition. But we'll go into uh, you know what happened with Solota and uh, where it is today. Uh, but that's mm -hmm. what Solota was. It was my first taste at entrepreneurship and data. I would say that's the, the best uh, intermingle. Before that, there was a short stint at a, a gaming startup. I built a consumer game startup and I built a restaurant game with cute little avatars. And let's not go into that. That was like a, a chapter of my life where I was trying to do something and I built a company. Just for <laughs> a what do you mean? We're not going to spend the hour talking about the Diner Dash clone? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what it was. It's called. It was called Shiny Restaurant. You can probably Google for it and find images. Maybe I'll go download it later. Yeah, awesome. And then so so I, I see a question here, but I'm just gonna hold on a second because that's a little bit deeper into infrastructure and cloud. Um and and so Solota was was built in Vancouver, right? Yes. Um and then and then after that, how did that covalent get started? Yeah, it was an interesting question. So uh as a database guy. I've always known about blockchains. You know, block the like Bitcoin blockchain was invented uh, 20, 2009. So it's been around for a while. And I've always dismissed it because there I was I only looked at the the bust and the boom cycles. But what happened was uh, this is a true story. This actually happened at launch. And uh, at launch, you you come across a lot of very interesting people. And one of those guys was uh, Shafin from Victory Square. And so I didn't really have a professional relationship with him, but he was an investor in Victory Square as a very successful investment firm. And uh, there was one shared washroom with four stalls. You remember that back in Gastown. So <laughs> we were signing out, you know, waiting for, uh, waiting to use the washroom. And he's like, you know, we don't really, you know, we, we shared the same office, but we didn't really, you know, engage or anything. And he said, yeah, he's like, what are you up to? And he knew I was in the database world because he used to see those screensavers on my laptop, right? And my desk was the first desk as you entered that private office and his desk was behind. And so he's like, yeah, there's a, a database hackathon happening this weekend at launch and you should check it out. And, uh, and then I said, you know, I'm not really into, into blockchain and stuff. And he said, no, it's a database hackathon. It's not really, it's run by a blockchain company, but it's a database hackathon. And I think you should find it interesting. And so uh, I think that weekend was, it was raining just as, you know, just like today, it's a rainy, cloudy day. And what am I going to do on the weekend? Let, let me go check out this hackathon. So I put a team together and we went to this Blue Zell hackathon at Launch Academy. Uh, this is exactly four years ago. So this was, this would have been October this week, uh, four years ago, 2017. And uh, we ended up winning that hackathon. So there I built the initial prototype for, uh, for what, what is today Covalent. And so uh, then, yeah, that's that's the startup covalent. There was no name; it was just a hackathon. We called ourselves as the Google of blockchain. It lets you access blockchain data without having to uh, download the blockchain. And this crew I put together was very interesting. So I had no blockchain experience, but I had a lot of database experience. I know what the industry requires from a, from a database perspective. But then the other guys knew the blockchain side, so you know it was just a very great. It was a great combo. And so, uh, so that's that's the, the initial genesis of the idea. We built it at a hackathon over over two nights and uh, and ended up winning that hackathon. And then then there was a pivotal moment. Do we what do we do with this? Do we just uh, you know enjoy that hackathon, that short lived thing, or you know build it into something bigger? 
Yeah. So, so talking about the hackathon and the initial prototype, like what were you trying to achieve? I mean, obviously you were trying to win, but, but was there any specific goal that, that you guys were building towards and has that kind of shifted now kind of looking back? So one of the things about the data space is that data has gravity and no matter what new technology is adopted in the enterprise, there's always going to be a legacy piece of infrastructure that's never going away. There's always a COBOL system and always an Oracle system in your, in your back office that's been chugging along for the last you know, 20, 30 years, going nowhere. So the way these new technologies get adopted is you need to build some kind of middleware or a bridge that connects the new world with the old world. That's always how technology is adopted within the enterprise. So I knew blockchains could be something that uh, would be adopted by enterprises at some point, lots of unknowns, but this is a technical you know, uh, hackathon. It's not only a business competition. And so by putting a database uh, layer on top of a blockchain, now what you can do is you can connect the entire database industry, all of your applications like Tableau and Excel and Python and Java to a blockchain and do your reporting and your compliance. And uh, that's what it enabled. So I was trying to figure out if it was possible to build something like that. And that was the hackathon project that we built. So we basically uh, provided this middleware. So it's almost like like a Netflix where before the streaming Netflix was, you had to go to Blockbuster and get a DVD. And if it's, if it's out, uh, then you need to put your name on a wait list and then you come back home. But today, you know, you have hours and hours of content uh, on Netflix that's available to be streamed. So that's essentially what we had built. We built a streaming technology that you can access data on the blockchain without downloading the blockchain. And you can use it using the existing tools without uh, learning a new paradigm, without learning or uh, retraining your people or uh, retooling your software stack. So that's really what uh, we were trying to accomplish from a technical standpoint. Mm, makes sense. And fast forward to today, how are, I guess, what type of users are using Covalent now and, and how are they using it? Just to paint the picture. I mean, some people listening may be familiar with, with Covalent already. Some aren't really familiar with blockchain at all. Sure. So blockchains are like databases and you can use blockchains for whatever you use a database. It's just more secure and it's tamper proof and it's a, it's a shared economy. So some of the use cases that we have is taxation is a pretty big deal. So every Every blockchain transaction, every crypto trade is a taxable event. So if you want to figure out what your taxable cost basis is, uh, you can use Covalent for that. So we have lots of uh, customers using Covalent for that. Another big use case is a wallet use case. And if you open up any wallet, the first thing that you want to see, let's take the TD or your RBC app. You open it up, it shows you a list of accounts. You have a checkings account, a savings account. And when you double click into one of those accounts, you see a list of transactions and the outstanding balance. So that's exact experience is what we mimic using the Covalent API. So there are hundreds of wallets out there that are today using Covalent for their crypto wallet experience. So that's another big use case. The third big use case is investor dashboards. So you have a list of assets, you wanna figure out what's performing, what's not performing, what is the, the growth rates, all kinds of due diligence work that you wanna do. Uh, basically measure entire GDPs of economies down from the, from the country level to the provincial level to the city level to the municipality level. So you're able to get that level of granularity that you can do with the Covalent API. So these are primarily our use cases, 
But of course, there's also a long tail of use cases that we didn't even plan for because the API is so flexible. So we have a, a social copy trading application. We have an enterprise payroll uh, software company. We have a pretty major like Fortune 50 uh, uh, enterprise company building NFTs and invoices, all kinds of use cases. It's just very flexible. We like to think of it as a can of tomato sauce and some pasta and whether you make lasagna or something else is up to the developer. We've come a long way from describing blockchain as a cake. I still remember 2017. Yeah. Everybody's like, blockchain is like a cake. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, cool. That's awesome. So so one last question about, about <clears throat> kind of like the early days. And then I want to move over because because some of the people are asking questions about, you know, building an infrastructure and stuff like that. Um, because because Saloida wasn't wasn't brand new, it had customers, it had, you know, users and things like that. Um, and at the same time, this thing kind of came out of a hackathon. You're like, oh, well, maybe we should try and build something out of it. Can you describe the shift a little bit from, from like, okay, this was like a pet project. Now it's got legs. Now it's something that I got to focus on. And maybe, maybe my original product even takes a backseat. Like what was that process like? And what ultimately kind of pushed you over to be like, no, this is, has to be like my primary thing. And, 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 you know, this moves to secondary. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I distinctly remember that that uh, week I took to deliberate over that decision. And it wasn't a light decision because uh, Silora had some brand awareness. We had a top performing blog and we had a lot of leads and lot, lots of stuff. A lot, lot of stuff is going well. But my, uh, my goal has always been to grow, to build a fast growing startup. And uh, something that wasn't fast growing wasn't really that interesting to me. It, uh, it just in terms of impact, in terms of the best use of my time. So one of the, I would say, mistakes that I made with Solota is that when the opportunity was there in maybe 2014, 2015, where I should have gone out and raised venture capital or some kind of seed capital and gone and exploited the, the window of opportunity, I kind of missed that. And so what happened by 2016, 2017 is a lot of the industry peers had become a lot more mature, so it become more competitive. Uh, in terms of you know finding that entry point, finding that beachhead before you're able to uh, get traction. So I was starting to feel that 2017, uh, you know, it, it by all means uh, was our biggest revenue year. By all means, you know, our traction and you know everything was going uh, you know up and to the right. Uh, but it wasn't seeing that explosive growth. And I knew uh, just from my understanding of the market. Uh, that that window had closed, you know, our uh, our closest competitors had all raised, uh, you know, 20, 30 million dollars, right? They had gone through two funding rounds. And I knew that uh, as an upstart, you're just late to the game. And that's just a killer for any kind of startup. And so uh, so I had to make a, a, a choice whether to stick around with this and then it'll be more like a lifestyle business. It'll be, you know, be very comfortable but it's not the outsized impact that I was going for. Uh, as opposed to something like uh, Covalent, what is today Covalent, where you start something from scratch and you don't have any, any of the legacy bits, but everything that I've learned from Solota, everything I've learned is exactly what I've rolled into a new product and new market offering, right? So uh, it was a question about, you know, being first to the market with a new product as opposed to uh, being a laggard in a well-established and a more mature market. So there are pros and cons to either decision. The problem with uh, starting from scratch is that 
you start from scratch. You have literally no infrastructure. You have nothing. You have you don't even have a name. You don't have a website. You don't have a, a thesis. You don't have uh, your, your positioning. You don't know who your customer is. You don't have product market fit. You don't even have a product. In fact, in our case, we didn't even have a market. So, um, so I think that's where uh, it becomes quite challenging. But yeah. uh, ultimately, I decided to do covalent and uh, phase down Siloto. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I think you brought up a really interesting point there that I think not enough founders talk about in terms of fundraising because I, I meet a lot of startups, obviously, in in my time, um, and and some kind of labeled themselves early, like I'm a bootstrap company, or or I plan on raising in 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 three months, or or I'm already at C stage, or or whatever it is. Like they've already had that kind of path like locked in in their mind. But I think in your case, you guys started out at a bootstrap company. It would have probably been ideal for you to, to look at what was going on in the market and, and react. Right. And so, so like, I think that's something that maybe some founders uh, don't always keep in mind um, because, because they might've wanted to set things one way, but we have to pay attention to the macro picture as well. Um, we'll come back to the, the fundraising bit and kind of talk about Covalent's fundraising journey a little bit, but there, there's a couple of questions here about, about the, the product of Covalent. Um, and so the first one's uh, pretty specific. It's from Aleem. And so obviously um, Aleem is, is uh, looking into understanding how to scale his, his uh, workforce um, globally. Uh, he, I believe, has a team in, in, I think, in the Middle East or, or in India, or I, I don't know. Uh, Liam, you might want to correct me, um, but he's looking at trying to shift hosting his infrastructure and cloud to to Vancouver. Um, I don't know if you've ran through the specific scenario he has in terms of shifting the base location from from India to to Canada, but you know, from your perspective, like you you're based in you're based in Vancouver, Canada, right now. Um, what? What kind of benefits from a perhaps a tax perspective or perhaps from a technology perspective is it having having you know your home base hosted in Vancouver? Uh, I don't think there are any specific advantages, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think if you want to win in the market, there's uh, not a lot of advantages. I think there are tax credits. There's other kinds of benefits to being uh, a Canadian company. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, if you want to build your staffing here in Canada, it's nice to have a Canadian company and uh, have them as employees. Uh, uh, we all know as entrepreneurs, if you go to a bank and you say you work for a startup, you're not eligible for the traditional financial system. Your mortgages and all that is just gonna be extremely painful. So to just give you that peace of, uh, peace of mind, um, I'm an employee of a Canadian company that does data analytics, right? So it's very simple to someone from the outside looking in. So I think that's the benefit. Uh, there are tax grants and there's like shred credits and IRAP, uh, but those things are not going to, those are not like your, uh, those are not going to make or break your startup, right? Those are nice to have. But uh, if your infrastructure is in India, it really depends on what kind of uh, uh, market you're targeting. So if it's something on the uh, edges, uh like a crypto startup, you probably don't want to have crypto infrastructure in India. So a lot of our, we have staff in India. Uh, they're all uh, employees of a Singapore company, for example, right? So uh, that's how you want to you want to set up. Uh, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Some people go down the Stripe Atlas route and that uh, sets you up with a Delaware uh, C Corp. So it's great for raising uh, money from institutional uh, investors down in the states, or even angel investors, because they can have tax write-offs. But it doesn't really uh, matter at the end of the day, to be honest. Like you know, the the game the, that's not how you're going to win the game. 
Cool. All right, Liam, hopefully that answered your question. Another question here is um, specific about the, the, I guess we can call it the blockchain stigma. Um, and, it, and Robbie here is asking like lots of top level seniors in big companies don't know much about blockchain. They think that blockchain is equivalent to Bitcoin. It sounds like a scam. I'm sure you've heard this S word more than a dozen times. How have you been able to overcome this problem for, for let's say non-tech or, or non-crypto people, um, especially in adopting your products? Well, for me, it's very simple. Just ignore them, right? They don't matter to your success. And, uh, you know, you can wait around to, for them to come around. There'll always be new use cases in whatever industry vertical you're targeting. So the guys who called, uh, I was one of them, right? In 2015, 2016, I looked at blockchain tech and I thought this was a joke because I was, I was uh, comfortable from a technical perspective. I was comfortable with 10,000 transactions per second while something like Ethereum can only do 15 transactions per second. I thought, okay, this is a joke because I didn't really understand the ethos of decentralization. So these guys will eventually come around, but today it's different. In 2021 and as we enter 2022, the Web3 movement is here. Blockchains are here to stay. It's not going back. Uh, the amount of talent that is entering this space is immense. There, every single company is looking at a, as a, as a blockchain as an opportunity, as a backend. Uh, there are real use cases, there are real economies, there's real uh, you know, transactions that's happening. All of the illicit behavior that you uh, heard from like back from 2016, 2017, they've all been you know, cleaned out of the system, which is great. Uh, we had this multi-year bear market because uh, we sold ourselves ahead of what the traction and the technology could support. But today, I'm not too concerned. You know, we have Fortune 50 companies as customers, and uh, they're uh, we are definitely not mainstream by any means. But I think the early majority is here. If you're familiar with Christensen's uh, crossing the chasm uh, analogy, so the early majority is definitely here. Uh, at the end of the day, I think people fear things they don't understand. So tools like Covalent help uh, bring visibility to what's going on on the blockchain. And they can they can find out that it's not all like, you know, illicit behavior, right? There's actual real stuff going on here. And um, yeah, it's just a matter of time. People called uh, the internet a scam. People called Amazon a scam. You can go back to uh, 25 years ago, and they said, you know, will this company ever survive, right? Will, is internet just a fad or is, uh, so these things happen. And you can see the same thing with with uh, with weed, right? So it's not even technology. So weed uh, has always had a stigma, but I wouldn't be too surprised in the next uh, five, 10 years, just like how you bring a nice bottle of wine to a dinner, you bring in a joint to a dinner. Why not? I think it's just, uh, just around the corner, to be honest. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And and um, I, I want to go back to, to what you just said. Like you did, you mentioned that there was like a bear market. Um, I, I want to say it was 2018, but honestly, dates are a little bit blurry now. Um, when, when it was like, it felt like it was down in the dumps. How did you as, as the founder of Covalent kind of weather that storm? Like what kind of gave you the conviction to keep going? Sure. So I can, I can give you a lot of advice on marketing and sales and fundraising and recruitment, but don't take my advice on market timing. I have the worst uh, credibility <laughs> amongst all of us. So when we started in 2017, 
Little did we know that we are going to be entering a multi-year bear market. So this is 2018, 2019. So we were bootstrapped for the first, uh, for the entire year uh, of that time. So for the first two and a half years, we were bootstrapped. Not because, you know, we wanted to be, be a bootstrap company. It's just that nobody was writing checks. The market was dead. There's no, no market. So we had no choice but to bootstrap uh, Covalent. And so uh, I knew this was a thing, right? I just know from technology cycles that this is uh, this is this is bound to happen. It's inevitable, and uh, technologies like Covalent will be part of that growth story if it were to ever come back. So we just kept trucking along. At the end of the day, it was actually pretty fun uh, to build uh, Covalent. It was just the two of us. It was Levi, my co-founder, and myself, and we just came in day after day after day, uh, just building tech. And there was no market, no customers, no revenue. But we just kept, you know, just just coding and coding and coding and coding, refining and refining, refining, and we did that uh, day after day for uh, two and a half years straight. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it difficult. Yeah, it was pretty difficult. It was uh, I actually lost a, a bit of uh, uh, you know belief in in Covalent uh, towards the end of 2018 because we had spent uh, a year at Covalent and nothing was going on. And that's when I, I took a, a small break to go climb Mount Everest, the base camp, and did that whole thing to like, really reflect on what's going on. And then I came back and, you know, um, I realized some things and uh, we just kept going. So I think uh, I knew this was inevitable, right? And uh, we didn't care too much about the macroeconomic conditions, uh, probably because, uh, you know, I've had a couple of exits in the past and, you know, financially I was, uh, I was okay. And I was able to float the whole thing, but from a opportunity, uh, like opportunity cost perspective, yeah, it's uh, it's not rational. I I don't I don't think uh, I don't think I have it in me to do this again in my life. To be <laughs> honest, uh, just I, I don't know why we did it, but we had a conviction and we just kept uh, trucking along, which yeah. is so great to look back because in twenty March twenty twenty, uh, there was uh, during the lockdown, there's a correction uh, in the stock market. Bitcoin dropped by 40% in one day. We had a term sheet for a fundraise that disappeared. It evaporated overnight. They went radio silent. So everything was just collapsing. And then uh, uh, for some reason, I'm really able to focus in moments of crisis. And I said, okay, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to do. Like A, B, C, D. And we executed that plan uh, exactly to the dot. And, and here we are. So... Uh, Bottom line, you know, uh, I don't know, to be honest. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. And I knew this was a thing. Uh, and I was willing to wait it out. That's amazing. And ironically, we're filming this on the day where Bitcoin's at an all-time high. So, you know, everything's yeah. cyclical. <laughs> exactly. So I, I was actually telling my team, so Covalent, the token has done really well. So mm. if people are so jubilant on the way up, are you going to get depressed on the way down, right? So, you know, you can't let your emotion... Uh, like the, the market is fickle. At the end of the day, you want to see what is real, what is substantial and continue building if you have a long-term vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so that's a good transition, I think, for us. <clears throat> a bunch of the questions that, that I have on my board are, are related to, to fundraising and, and tokens. And and uh, I have a couple of questions on DAO as well. Um, so, so I want to kind of start back a little bit. Um, from working with Victory Square, I think you guys first raised an early round with them. I, I, I don't know exactly the timeline, so maybe you could walk us through that. But then also you you went to raising two subsequent rounds. And then just to kind of release everything out into the open, uh, sometime, I think it was late last year or early this year, you guys also released a CQT token. 
Um, and then I think just last month, you guys really announced an Alchemist DAO. Um, that's a lot of buzzwords, especially for people who are listening in and maybe not familiar with blockchain, but maybe just walk us through the, the finances, maybe spend two minutes just talking about, you know, from, from your early raise with Victory Square and how, how we get to today where we are, have a token, we have a DAO, and also we've fundraised, I guess, in a more traditional way as well. Yeah, uh, great question. So when you think about a, a, a startup, not, not really a side project, but a startup, you need to have three roadmaps. You need to have a, a biz dev roadmap, you need to have a product roadmap, and you have to have a fundraising roadmap. Because startups take a lot of upfront capital before you're able to see revenues. It's not like a, a car washing or a laundromat or, or a service business where you can see cash flow from day one. So you need to plan this out and uh, you need to you know, make sure there's enough uh, fuel in the tank uh, before you're able to reach your next destination or your next milestone. So that initial round was not really a round, it's a friends and family kind of uh, you know, um, support. So uh, because I had known uh, Victory Square and Shapin for uh, almost two years by then, uh, and he was the guy who uh, pushed me, nudged me along the blockchain thing. He gave me that, you know, that insight that go check it out. It may be something that you're interested in because you're a database guy. Uh, it made sense for... Uh, uh, to bring him on board as a founder. So Victory Score is actually a founder of Covalent. So they were there from day one, uh, even before day one. So that's where that initial, you know, uh, working capital came from. But uh, that wasn't a lot of money. And the idea was that we go out there, build a uh, minimum wild product, and then go raise a, an actual round to build the staff. That that funding was only enough for uh, the, the initial founding team. And uh, that quickly ran out. So 2018, 2019 uh, was bootstrap. Uh, like I said, it was not because uh, we didn't want to raise money. It's because we could not raise money. We were, uh, we were um, just not attractive to investors. And you know, uh, there was no market, no traction, no revenue, nothing. And uh, in uh, 2019, what had happened is uh, we started to see early traction. So people are starting to, you know, explore covalence, starting to, you know, uh, do some interesting stuff. And then early 2020, uh, what happened is uh, the market started to, uh, you know, show life, uh, show some signs of life, right? You know, it was like, just like a little bacteria in, you know, your pre-life, you know, earth, whatever, whatever analogy you want to think about. And then the market was starting to revive, you know, things were happening. So that's when we decided to go uh, raise around and, um, uh, we uh, put something together um, and there was a term sheet and then the, the crisis hit. And when the crisis, uh, high financial crisis hit and, you know, COVID lockdown, and just a lot of uncertainty, uh, that, that opportunity disappeared. So then it was time to make it profitable. And by then the market uh, was enough to make it profitable for a team of like four or five people, right? So, you know, it was, it was enough. Um, I knew how to go uh, do sales and, you know, acquire customers. So, my first main uh, plan of attack was to make the company uh, profitable because I'd been floating the company for more than a year out of personal funds. And, you know, I was like, uh, my wife was like starting to question, like, what's, what's happening here? <laughs> you know, where's all the, all the savings and, you know, what, what, what do we have in store for our plans and all that stuff? So, you know, that was a bit of a difficult discussion there at home. But uh, once I made Covalent profitable, suddenly there was a huge weight uh, taken off my shoulder. 
And uh, like now I'm not floating the company, I'm not bleeding cash. Uh, and it's just this, this thing on its own. And we had closed the biggest company in the space, Consensus. Because what happened when COVID hit is that um, the, uh, the, the sales landscape or the competitive landscape kind of flattened out, right? And so we were able to close these big customers in New York and London from our town uh, in Vancouver because nobody knew what was uh, behind a Zoom screen and nobody cared, right? It was just purely on the merit of your technology and your sales fit. So I used to wake up at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., you know, just because I was so hungry to close these sales and make uh, Kowalan profitable. And once we became profitable, suddenly, you know, a lot of doors opened to us, right? And so then we did one round, two rounds. We actually did five rounds in the last uh, year, uh, 15 months. So we've been very, very busy. So basically what we did is uh, once we hit profitability, once we hit product market fit, uh, the timing was great. Uh, the market was hot. All we did is went out, raised capital, uh, deployed that 100% into our product, into our team, built out our momentum and our traction, went out and raised another round, put it back into the growth, 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 went out, raised another round. And then each time we would uh, upgrade our investor base. So first set of investors were like angels and friends. Then we brought in institutional investors and then we brought in Coinbase and Binance and uh, FTX. So these are the top three exchanges, our investors in Cobalion. Then we brought in Hashed, who is uh, uh, funded by the Sovereign Wealth Fund of South Korea. And we just went, uh, just kept doing that again and again and again. So in the last 15 months, we've grown from, we were literally just three people in September of 2020. And today we're about 40 people, right? So the growth has been incredible. We just had five customers in September 2020. Today we have 400 customers. We only indexed one blockchain, one enterprise, uh, you know, customer uh, last year. Now we have over 15. So everything, like that's basically what we've done, right? We just deployed, just hustled our way through on a growth trajectory. So I think when people see that momentum, they feel the momentum and they want to be part of this and uh, it's on the upswing. So fundraising becomes easier. So uh, we can go into the specifics of the fundraising, the, the tactics and, the strategy and it all comes down to you know what do you want to achieve we can go into that if you have time if there's interest from the audience or we can move on to another topic definitely so so yeah if you guys have specific fundraising questions um feel free to pump them in um it seems like the interest right now that i have on the board is kind of comparing like um DAOs, and i'm going to spit out a bunch of acronyms here so it's DAOs, idos icos stos how do those compare against traditional raises and 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 the structure that like what's kind of like the pros and cons i guess for for a company that's looking into it today so if you want to be legally compliant there's no difference right it's all exactly the same they're just different uh different instruments it's just like the difference between an equity raise and a debt raise the pros and cons to uh to you know each each uh method so i would say if you do uh tokens or you do debt or you do equity raises uh, they're all meant to achieve something. So you have to be very clear on what you're trying to accomplish. So if you're doing an equity raise, you know, the equity investors are looking for some kind of uh, M&A or some kind of acquisition at the end, either through uh, 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 public market exit or something of that nature. If you're doing uh, a debt financing, then it comes with a whole set of gotchas, right? So nothing is free. If you're doing a token raise, uh, again, the regulatory framework is extremely complex. You know, navigating that is pretty challenging. 
there's a lot of help now, but uh, last summer we had to figure all of this out from scratch. And I think we were probably one of the first four or five companies in Canada to do this kind of like token raise. Everyone discouraged me. Uh, and uh, well, we did it. So here we are. So <laughs> I think the pros and cons to every single uh, strategy, uh, you just have to be very clear upfront on what your goals are. Yeah. And one of the questions specifically about the token was, is there any requirement or regulation in Canada, I guess, to, to issue a token like CQT? I think the answer is yes, but I think maybe, maybe this is something that Alex, the question is, the person who's asking the question is, is looking into specifically. So like, what are some kind of maybe starter tips to, to look out for and look into? So what we have done is we've set up an offshore entity. And the entire purpose of that offshore entity is to issue these tokens. And once it's sufficiently decentralized, once the tokens have been distributed, you dissolve that entity. So you can set this up in uh, Puerto Rico, in Cayman Islands, in British Virgin Islands, and Singapore. So these are all very friendly to this kind of setup. So you definitely uh, need to get legal counsel. None of this is legal advice by any means. Um, so. You know, that's the setup that you do. And then you set up a, a transfer pricing and an IP licensing agreement between the Canadian entity and the offshore entity. So you do the fundraisers outside of Canada. And then you have a very clear uh, contract where the intellectual property is, is built in Canada, but is transferred over for, uh, service, for a service contract. So that's how we've set it up. And uh, that's one way to do it. There are multiple ways to do it for sure. Uh, but that's the route that we've taken. Awesome. Hope that helps you out, Alex. Um, another question was more related to the the DAOs. I guess I guess for for context, what is a DAO first of all, um, and like should companies be looking more into to creating DAOs as a again generality? Sure. So one of the beautiful things about these crypto economies is that the token is a shared ownership. So in the case of Airbnb, for example, they're equity holders and then they're actual users of Airbnb. This could be the travelers or the hosts, right? Those are the guys who are using it, but those guys don't actually have any equity, right? They don't see the upside, the financial upside of Airbnb, the network itself growing up. So that's different from a DAO. So in the case of Covalent, uh, the company doesn't own anything. Like I personally don't own uh, like the covalent network. It belongs to the token holders. Yes, I am a token holder, but I'm, I have the exact same rights as any other token holder. And so it's this network economy, which we have currently 25,000 people who own covalent collectively, right? And so we all make decisions collectively and I'm not above anyone else on the network side. So that's what a DAO is. A DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. So Basically, there are no rules. You can come in and you can participate in a, in a, in a vote, for example, just like a governance vote. And you can, uh, uh, you can you know, spearhead and change the parameters of our, our technology. And then if there were any kind of uh, you know, value accrual mechanism through the token, that would go directly to the token holders and not to the company. The company just happens to be the initial Genesis team that's building the, the product, but it, like the, the the Canadian company has no tokens. It has no nothing. There's no no connection between the two. We just happen to have that service contracts where the DAO is contracting the Canadian company to build out the technology. 
mm-hmm. in exchange for value, right? But the Canadian company itself has no tokens. There's no there's no exposure there, so it's very clear from a from a standpoint. But what is happening in the next couple of uh, months, next couple of years, is as the network is up and running, uh, the PNL, the profit and loss statement for the DAO, is very distinct from the company, and there'll be multiple setups across the world uh, who are you know contributing to this DAO, uh, just like the Canadian company is. So that's the goal there. So there's no single point of failure. You can you can you can shut down the Canadian company, no big deal. The DAO is still autonomous. You can shut down the Singapore entity, the maybe the South Africa entity, maybe the the Berlin entity. It's not a it's not a showstopper at all. Gotcha, gotcha. And then so for for <laughs> I'm using the word traditional startups, but it feels very off the tongue. <laughs> but what can they kind of learn from this DAO process, or 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 help to understand it better because it does sound like, and you're, you seem to believe in this, like more corporations, more startups are going to shift to this types of type of model, right? Because with web two, we like, when we talk about things like Facebook, like one of our biggest complaints is like, well, they're controlling how we consume our data and what we want to see and things like that. And that's not okay anymore. Right. And, and as you kind of mentioned, having a DAO model kind of not shifts responsibility, but, but you know the people have more control. Your users have more control, right? I think at the end of the day, that's that's the goal. Um, so so how can can you know traditional startups or non blockchain startups today kind of look at that and go, hey, this is something I need to learn from. This is something I need to pay attention to. Yeah. So if a co op model works or makes sense in your vertical, then I think taking a look at DAO uh, makes sense. So I think that's where it comes in. But if you're a traditional, like a, I know, like a restaurant serving food, for example, <laughs> having a DAO there doesn't really make a lot of sense unless the people, the patrons who are coming to the restaurant want ownership stake on what is being uh, served as food. If that's like a collective agreement, then it makes sense. So. I think that's where it makes sense. Uh, having a DAO just for the sake of having a DAO uh, is not like, a, at least I, I'm, I'm not bought into that idea, right? Mm-hmm. There has to be a, a specific purpose. I can go into the Alchemist DAO and why we built that. Yeah, for sure. So one of the uh, things, so we have, we have like a very structured growth plan at Covalent. So we have like product engineering, we have like the recruitment side for talent, we have customer acquisition, we have customer retention, and the final pillar, the fifth pillar is community. Because people can steal our technology, people can probably hire our staff away, but they can never steal our community. Our, our community is who we are. And if you look at the big um, products out there, they have the rabbit fan base. Like if you look at Apple or you know, look at those sneakers uh, behind Sam's desk, right? So there is a lot of excitement there. So we wanted to build something like that for Covalent. And so what we did was earlier this year, we uh, uh, for the for the DAO, we uh, allocated one percent of our entire supply to fund a community program. So we designed the Alchemist program as a learning and development uh, program, and there were like multiple seasons. So every season you have to go through like a questionnaire, and you have to do these tasks, and you have to show and demonstrate that you're growing with Covalent. Right, and uh, we airdropped the Covalent token CQT to to fund this program and as a reward. 
And that Alchemist program, we ran that completely internally because we were bootstrapping it from day one. We started from like one user. I think we have 2,500 uh, um, you know, users or Alchemists uh, after five seasons. So it was a very structured uh, program. And uh, some of your uh, members know Jackie. Uh, Jackie Kim Perez uh, was at launch for a very long time. She was uh, actually working at Victory Square. And she joined Covalent earlier this year to run the Alchemist program. And so what's beautiful about this is that we funded this, yes. And that 1% is now about $15 million, right? So all these guys who came in and volunteered, that airdrop is now worth a lot of money. And in many cases, it's actually more than their yearly comp that they, and they also learned out of this. So that is quite magical in terms of, you know, what, what, what has happened there. And now there are meetups. Now there's like uh, a lot of stuff going on, but we funded that program, right? And what should happen is this should be completely, you know, standalone. It should be uh, self-funded. It should reach profitability. It's just like another company and the PL has to be sustainable at some point. It's not, it doesn't make sense to, you know, for us to fund it. So that's why the DAO structure. So now the programs, the PL. The you know what what how you structure this how do you do recruitment uh, what kind of uh, you know campaigns you can launch is actually run by the DAO members it's run by the alchemists so we've elevated the top performing uh, alchemists to be guild leaders so we have I think six or seven different guilds uh, esports guild mental health guild uh, learning and education guild developer guild I think there's a research guild. And those guys, they have, they hold the, the the strings to the purse, and they manage the PNL, and they do their biz dev, and they do everything autonomously. It's completely away from what Covalent is doing. So it's pretty emergent in that sense. And some of these guilds, it's pretty crazy. Like they they did a SQL webinar last week, and 125 people showed up to that webinar, right? And so now it's its own thing, it has a life of its own, and it's again, completely decentralized. So the people who are part of the guild, you only need one CPT to be a member of this guild. And they manage the PNL, they step up to become leaders and they, they figure out how to make it profitable. So they're almost entrepreneurs in that sense. So it's given a lot of access, a lot of opportunity to people and they don't have to apply for a job. Literally they go buy one CPT. I think it's less than $2 today. And they go to Discord and join the channel and then go participate, you know, roll up the sleeves and, and go do work for in exchange for bounties. So it's, it's very distinct from Covalent. So that's the journey that the Alchemist program has gone over. And now they're getting bounties. So we got a, a $50,000 grant from another project because they want to use the Alchemist to build some interesting tools. So that's revenue for the guild. Not, that's, that's not revenue for Covalent, right? So the distinction is, is quite distinct there. So that's pretty amazing to see what uh, what has emerged from uh, the initial Atomus 1.0 program. So that's that's what's happening there. Mm -hmm. Was there like a mental shift that you kind of had to force yourself as a founder? Because I think the the founder their their instinct is like, well, I build customers buy right, and and you know to some sense you have control over what you build right. Obviously, there's a feedback loop and things like that. But now we're going where it sounds like these these are ecosystems and communities that you've created through your different lines of product. And those are, I mean, obviously there's still staff involved, like Jackie does a big part of that, but, but they are self-sustaining and they're, they're growing and learning and, and becoming their own things. And, and it sounds like soon, if not even now, they're going to be projects that you barely know about. Right. 
but they're self-sustaining and they're in their learning. Like, was that like a weird shift for you as a founder? Because like, that's probably not what most founders are used to. Yeah. So it comes down to scale, right? So if you think about even equity, there's a very clear analogy. Equity is like, uh, is like manure where if you, if, you, uh, if you distribute it, you know, you have a beautiful flower bed, but if you keep it to yourself, it's a shit, right? So that's, mm-hmm. a, uh, that's a really neat analogy. So it's the same thing with, uh, with the tokens, right? So by, by having distribution, by distributing it to everyone, rather than keeping everything to yourself, a lot more flowers can bloom. It's a lot more beautiful. And so if you're okay with that, uh, which I am okay with it. I think, uh, you know, even though my personal stake uh, keeps decreasing, uh, the, the net value of that smaller and smaller shrinking slice of the pie becomes that much more richer. So that's, that's the mindset that I'm coming in from. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Just kind of, kind of closing in on things here. We have a couple questions kind of about about the industry in general, in terms of Web3. Um, one of the first ones was like, I guess, what spaces do you see kind of Web3 disrupting, for lack of a better term, next? And, and there's a very specific one about like, how can blockchain disrupt insurance industry? Yeah, so um, it's fascinating to see what's happening. There are existing businesses that can be disrupted. So like the banking and the, the financial sectors, I think they're going to be disrupted because cost of transactions there, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing to see how efficient these blockchain systems are. Uh, when it comes to um, insurance, I think this co-op model is very, very interesting, right? So just like how we have... Um, uh, joint stock corporations, if you look at most uh, insurance products today, they're underwritten by you know, a for-profit corporation. But what uh, the insurance model that were historically being built were, uh, were mutual uh, insurance companies. So the mutual insurance, the co-op for insurance and the underwriters is a perfect fit for blockchains because you can have a token and the token is shared by the members of the insurance co-op. And they're underwriting themselves. So there's uh, Nexus Mutual is an example of a blockchain-based insurance uh, product uh, that is very in, uh, interesting and innovative when it comes to insurance. Um, I would say in the next five years, pretty much every single consumer uh, fintech application will be uh, repositioning themselves to support digital assets and crypto. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, market timing has never been my strong suit. So take that with a grain of salt. That's fair. Um, and, and definitely, I think, I think a big part of it is, is how fast or slow governments move as well, right? Um, what are your kind of thoughts on, on, obviously, like we've talked about Covalent itself, like all the different spaces that they are even just incorporated in. Um, is it difficult working with with like government and talking about things like like taxes and regulations and stuff like that? And each time you're entering a new country or, or you have I don't know if it's customers or or, or team members in new countries, it's, is it is it like another new set of rules to learn or, or what's your experience been with that? So uh, a lot of this is just gray area, 
So there are no rules, right? And as long as you're not doing something blatantly illegal, like mm-hmm. you're uh, you're selling a security or you're uh, you're uh, you're funding illicit behavior, um, you know, you uh, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. That's mm-hmm. all I can say. Because a lot of this stuff is just very, very gray area. Uh, we are uh, doing proof of concepts with traditional enterprises. Uh, you know, central bank digital currencies is a hot thing. So that's going to come on the horizon in the next five years. So we have, you know, um, early stakes in a lot of these projects. But uh, today, you know, it's it's just very cloudy in terms of what the roadmaps are. Um, everyone is skeptical. Everyone is a little afraid. So, you know, you just have to make sure you don't have any downside uh, exposure, at least at our scale at Covalent, where there's a lot going on. I think the impetus is on us to decentralize ASAP uh, so that there's no single point of failure. You can come to a single node and take the entire project out. And uh, yeah, so that's what we've been working on. Awesome. And just so, so for live listeners, we just have a couple of minutes left. Um, if you have any last minute questions, feel free to fire them my way and I'll try and kind of squeak it in. But just kind of rounding things off, like, like you mentioned, you've worked out of launch in the very early years um, a whole bunch. Um, I've known you for a long time. I've seen you grow as, as a person, as an entrepreneur. You, you scaled Mount Everest or at least base camp, right? <laughs> um, base camp, yep. what, what would kind of be advice that you would give to you to, you know, you starting out earlier on, like as, as a younger entrepreneur? I would say don't ignore the macroeconomic conditions, right? Uh, you can you can take product risk, you can take team risk, you can take financing risk, but don't take market risk. Honestly, uh, it's just not worth uh, worth that. You know, uh, I should say that the reason Covalent is successful is because of market risk. So you know the the uh, the upside is is huge, but I would say. Uh, Taking market risk is, uh, see, as an entrepreneur, you got to take calculated risks and market risk is not something that you should take because what would happen is that if there's no market, you're building the wrong thing. You're not getting feedback from market. You're not able to get that momentum running. You are not able to, you know, uh, to build any kind of like flywheel, right? Nothing is happening. Everything is at a standstill. Like the first two years, at first two, two and a half years at Cobain, there's nothing going on. It was just like completely, you know, uh, I think it's honestly a waste of time, right? Because we were building stuff that, you know, half the stuff we threw out because it was not even relevant when the market actually picked up. You know, things that we had that would be cool are just a waste of time. So, you know, we if we had the market that we have today, we could have built Covalent in half the time, I would say, because we would not have uh, wasted, uh, you know, other things. Uh, the only thing that's good uh, that, that is, was on our side and is on our side is that the tech is extremely difficult to build. So even though we have about 15 competitors that popped up after our fundraising last fall, none of the, uh, those guys have been able to keep up because the tech itself takes like, you know, 18 months to, a, to two years of dedicated, focused effort to get it out of the door. So if you look at the market today, there are two big players and both players started in 2017, 2018 era. So they live through that multi-year bear market where you can just be heads down focused, right? Without distractions. But in bigger markets, don't take market risk. It's not worth it. Perfect. And appreciate you as always being so honest and transparent with, with everybody here. 
Uh, last question from me is just if people want to chat shop, if they want to talk Web3, they want to talk about DAOs, they want to talk about tokens, how should they reach out to you? You can uh, email me, Ganesh at CovalentHQ.com, G-A-N-E-S-H at CovalentHQ.com. Uh, another option is to go to my Calendly and then just directly book something uh, like a hat in our chat. I'm always down to, uh, to help people. Uh, if you want to learn about BizDev, if you're looking for a job uh, in the space, uh, hit me up. If you're, if you're a new entrepreneur and if I like your idea, I also write angel checks. Uh, I also have a, a VC fund that uh, writes uh, checks, bigger checks. So I'm a partner at another fund. Um, yeah, I think there should be more entrepreneurs, more successful entrepreneurs, and I can, uh, I can share all of the mistakes I've made so that you don't make them. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Ganesh. Um, um, and we'll definitely chat again soon, uh, try and get you more involved with, with the community here as well, as much as your, your time allows. Um, and, and yeah, so, so that, come, uh, that wraps up our episode. Um, stay tuned for more. And thank you very much, everybody. Have a good Thanks, day. Thanks, Sam. No problem. Really enjoyed this. Take care. Yeah, for sure. Bye. Bye.